Welcome to Oak and Adam, unfiltered conversations about nature, philosophy, spirituality, and life between a druid and an atheist. I'm Brian, a druid. And I'm Eric, an atheist. Welcome to Oak and Adam. And welcome back to another episode of Oak and Adam. Brian, how are we doing today? Not too bad, not too bad. Definitely trying to figure out where spring went. No kidding. Uh, uh, the the day of this recording, we still have yet to get to some traditional spring weather. In fact, I, I had a year reminder where we had bluebell uh, bluebells in one of my prior videos from last year at this time of the year, and it's like they're nowhere to be seen in the forest right now. Um, everything's still brown. I mean, there's a little bit of green out there, but not near, not near to where it's where it needs to be at. Oh yeah, I mean the uh, the garlic mustard's greening up real nice right now. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the invasive species does. Right, they always do. They're the first to green up. So, uh, so for this episode, I, I I was looking back and and listening to some of our prior conversations, Brian, and it's, there's a little bit of some parallels. Um, that I wanted to discuss, and, and you brought a great point. Um, it was one of, I believe, it was our first episode that we re- that we recorded, and it was about our background. And it was with your house that you had, and you were in the sea of what I call monoculture, where it's the the nice, you know, pristine lawns, HOAs, you know, uh, the beige yep. box lands of the world. The, yep, up in Ankeny. <laughs> and, uh, but you had a rich, biodiverse lawn within a, within that household. And that, that to me is like... And that was something I had to actually manufacture. Right. Because it was a new construction. Um, we had just put down sod. And then once the sod was put down, like literally the day after... I had a bag of white clover seed. I'm out scattering it and then was trying to plant some violets. I didn't go so far as to introduce a creeping Charlie, mostly because I didn't have any <laughs> access to it. Um, but yeah, I'm sure my neighbors loved me. And then, of course, I think I had like seven fruit trees and like a couple blueberry bushes, a couple um, elderberry bushes and all assortment of trying to make a food forest. Right. It, to me, what, what really stood out is that there's so much parallels of like the enrichment that biodiversity brings, not only to nature, but as well as even to our own lives. And I, I was I was doing some reflection about that, where it's that biodiversity, not only for a good forest, right, or nature setting, where you have that rich biodiversity, mm-hmm. but so as well as... Real quick, before we go too deep in... Maybe we want to take a quick moment of kind of breaking down the phrase biodiversity. It's a very conservation, like, jargony. Um, So biodiversity, to kind of essentially simplify it for the lay folk, is, you know, having a whole lot of a bunch of different stuff. Um, pretty much, you know, it's having like a lot of mixture as opposed to what would you say would be the opposite of biodiversity? Monoculture. Exactly. So having just like one thing growing there, like just Kentucky bluegrass or Mm -hmm. corn, um, you know, so biodiversity is 
the more biodiversity you have, the healthier an ecosystem is. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you for that. I mean, because that's a, that's such a good reminder of what I wanted to parallel was, you know, not only in the biodiversity of our ecosystems, but as well as even within our own philosophies that we, that we instill the, you know, the, the people that are within our lives, be it of politics, be it of philosophy, be it of our, our own experiences in our lives. I mean, life is to be experienced and it's not just one thing over and over again. It's multiple things to be experienced and, and to have people who have different backgrounds and perspectives because those, those individuals just enrich your lives. They provide different lenses and make you either appreciate what you've experienced so far or push you to experience new things within your life that enrich your life, that, that biodiversity of life. It's almost kind of like a scalability even of what good biodiversity of all these facets, all these facets can provide to you, right? And it's, but it's also, it's reciprocal. So even though I was talking about the self of how that enriches oneself, when you enrich yourself, you can enrich, enrich others around you, right? And that's that beauty of that biodiversity is that it's cyclical, just like a good nature is that it's cyclical. It, what, what you give is what you take. It's kind of, there's a lot of parallels when it comes to a good, rich biodiversity. But it's, it's interesting when I was even driving out here for this recording, you know, you see the, I call it the monoculture of society where a lot of everything's the same. And even like in conversations with people, a lot of it is just comparativeness to your sameness. And then it's like, but where's the, where's, where's that enriching your life? Like to me, it's like that, that would be just so pedestrian. Why, why would you want to be the sameness? Like, <laughs> well, why would you want yeah. to be in that comparative sameness? Like, well, you get when, you know, the familiar feels safe. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I, I think, where a lot of that comes from. Um, when, like, the, I could definitely say that, you know, when I was in the military and spent time um, in Iraq and in Israel, um, especially when we first landed in Iraq, or not Iraq, but we landed in Kuwait before going into Iraq. And as we were going from the airfield to the base, I remember like seeing a sign for camel racetrack and like people riding camels. And I'm looking around, I'm like, this Iowa boy's like, what the? (laughs) (laughs) Where am I? (laughs) Yeah. And like it's one thing to see pictures of the Middle East in the desert. It's another thing to like actually be there and to like smell it. Mm. Um, because like, like you can imagine what you know sand feels like. You can imagine what hot weather feels like. Um, you can kind of see the pictures of it, but the one thing that you can't recreate is like the smell. Um, and. You know, I remember looking around like, this is it. And then when we landed in Iraq, um, we were in the Baghdad airfield and we could hear, you know, explosions in the distance. And we're like, that's not training. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Marine side. That's that's where the giggle comes from. Um, (laughs) That's not training. Yeah. Where the, uh, how did we put it? (laughs) Welcome to the two-way firing range. Mm. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and then it's, it's the re, it's the real deal. Like this is oh yeah. Well, I mean, I remember getting in the back of a seven ton truck, and I had my sixteen with my grenade launcher facing outboard, and we're driving um, to our FOB or forward operating base, and. Um, I mean, we went by a car that all that was left of it was an engine block. We had like missed a suicide bomber by about, I think, 10, 15 minutes. And I'm staring at this guy in like the old Desert Storm style, Desert Camouflage, they're called like the chocolate chip um, (laughs) style. Uh, And wearing a ski mask and I'm looking at him like, this guy looks exactly like a terrorist from the Counter-Strike game and uh, and I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, nobody else is shooting at him. So I guess he's supposed to be there. <laughs> Cause he's standing there with an AK. I'm like, he literally looks like the, you know, the well, you're trained, stereotypical yeah. terrorist. I'm like, well, no one else is shooting. So I probably shouldn't either. <laughs> and he's not shooting at me. And just like, and for the next seven months that we were there, it was like, it went from like, where am I to, oh yeah, we're heading over this way. And you kind of got to know some of the locals and some of the culture and it just, it changes who you are. Sure. Yeah. That, that, well, it's a different type of style of travel. Right. But it's like, it becomes home. Did it become home a little bit for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it definitely did. Like a part of me was actually a little sad when we were leaving. Hmm. Um, it was kind of, it was a very weird feeling. Like on one hand, we were definitely looking forward to being able to, you know, come home and, you know, not have to wear body armor to go pee in a porta john. Um, sure. That's what <laughs> that's we did fair. for seven months. And so there were some like conveniences like indoor plumbing and not getting mortared that we were looking forward to. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like we kind of, we got to knew, we got to know the locals and, you know, we knew the unit that was replacing us was coming in with a different strategy. And so we knew that they weren't going to have the same connection and it was kind of sad. Um, when we left and it was like the area deteriorated very quickly. It was, um, we left there in late, uh, or not late, but, um, early, uh, 2005, uh, right before the sectarian violence kind of ramped sure. up. And so a lot of the people that we got to know ended up being killed. So very sad. Yeah. It very was sad. Yeah. It was, and so it was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's like, it was, it was definitely, definitely when we left, it definitely kind of became home after a while. When you came home, finally, did you feel uncomfortable for a bit? Um, the biggest thing was kind of like, what the hell is this Jordan Creek thing? <laughs> um, so that's the, for, for some of the listeners, that's one of the big, so it, like when you return it, so it's a big mall. Uh, it's probably the second largest, if not the largest mall in Iowa. Yeah, I, think I think Coral so. Ridge out by Iowa City is a little bit bigger. Yeah, but. I'm not entirely sure, but it didn't exist when we left, and it was open when we got back. Right. I remember because I was going to college at Simpson right around that time frame, and it was like brand new too. So it was like this new thing, but it was surrounded by like cornfields at that point. Now it's like developed all around it. Oh, yeah. It's interesting of how that Get suburban... Wells Fargo Death Star out there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Now you have this suburban crawl that's out, uh, that's that's in there, and it filled in with the strip malls and other shiny new things that are out there. But 
yeah, that, that whole area has transformed um, over the course of the years living here in central Iowa. But I bet that was a, just a different experience. Like coming back home was like how much has changed. Like it wasn't familiar. Oh, no, it was definitely, definitely weird. I remember the very first time I experienced that was when I went to boot camp for three months mm-hmm. um, just in San Diego. And that definitely did not really involve like travel aside from going to California yeah. for the first time in my life. Um, but when I got back, I had never been away from home for that long before. Mm. And so just the three month blip, it was just like everything just felt different enough. And I think it was more about like, it was less that Des Moines had changed and more that I had changed, which then impacted how I viewed everything. Sure. Like what, what was the big thing that changed for you? Because travel changes. Uh, it changes perspective, good or bad experiences, right? What was the big thing for you that changed with your travels? Um, the, well, the it's kind of it's kind of hard to put my finger on like on one thing specifically, but um, like in Iraq, uh, one of the jobs that we had to do aside from patrolling was. Um, we had to, you know, guard detainees. Um, so being infantry, like we would go out and we would, you know, arrest insurgents. Mm-hmm. We'd get intelligence that they were like doing, like making IEDs over here or doing beheadings over there. And we'd go and we'd raid those places and then we'd arrest them, bring them back. Well, then we had to guard them until they went through the whole uh, process before ending up at Abu Ghraib. Right. What, um, like you'd be sitting there with, you know, these guys with, they'd have their, you know, their goggles on and, you know, they'd be, you know, zip tied and just sitting there and you'd be, you know, just a few feet from them. And occasionally one of them, if they had to use the head, you'd take them out to the port john and make sure that they, you know, didn't do anything crazy. None of them did, thankfully. Um, and then, but while you're sitting there doing that, because usually it was like a four-hour shift, you know, you'd inevitably be contemplating, what if our roles were reversed? Like, these are people who, if the situation was, you know, reversed, they'd be, you know, cutting off my head. Mm. But, and then you think about it, you'd be like, well, why? I mean, like, and... Through that experience, and it's this isn't always the case, but I kind of came to a point where, like, I just kind of pitied them that whatever life experience they had gone through led them to this. That, like, I didn't hate any of them. Um, it was just kind of like, well, I'm here, you're there, and it kind of created this weird, like. Empathy. I mean, at the same time, through the training and stuff, I was ready to shoot any of them if they did anything crazy. Sure. Just because of, like, I personally like to continue existing. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a very practical thing. But it it definitely changed the way that, you know, you look at just people and different cultures and how, you know, you can have... One, you take, like, if I had switch spots with them and had the exact same upbringing, the exact same life, I could have ended up in that same, sure. you know. 
there's like there's a reason why that people go down paths or it's not you know i'm not justifying horrible actions oh, right, no. by people or or institutions that do horrible actions but there's this the same experience that they had could very well that if those circumstances were placed upon either one of us that is a, that is a pretty close reality of what our outcomes could have been mm-hmm. right and and that's i that's where i was that's where I hope that a lot of people understand. Again, it's not a justification, but if those same circumstances were placed upon us, we would probably have similar outcomes. Like they, like those people, like a lot of people have in, in oh, that yeah. situation, right? Oh, absolutely. It's you have to look at the situation from kind of a how should I put it? Well. I think the easiest way to to say it is you don't have to hate someone to be able to fight and kill them. Um, That's actually more... um, Historically, that's not the case. Historically, there's always been like the aspect of dehumanizing um, the enemy and to make them almost non-human so they would be killable. Um, But through modern training, the... Um, essentially it turns it into, you know, a, um, essentially a job like, um, (laughs) the, there's a HBO series called generation kill, which I highly, highly recommend. Um, it's incredibly accurate in its depiction. And one of the things they talk about are soldiers, how they are, you know, we're not warriors. We're just, you know moderately chain trained machine operators mm-hmm. you know point and click and um the and through the training and that that allows us to work in a high stress combat environment that creates you know the ability to disassociate which is what allows you to disconnect from the environment and temporarily turn off your you know empathy and do what you need to do and then get back to the job um that does not translate over to the civilian world which is part of the reason why like PTSD is so prevalent um, in the veteran community. Right. Um, it takes a lot of therapy to unwire that, uh, to turn that off. Right. But what I did keep out of that was that empathy and that exposure to the different cultures, because the majority of my time in Iraq, what, like I, I personally never had to shoot to kill anyone um, in the seven months I was there. Uh, never had to do that. I drank tea and ate more, uh, like the non bread that they make. That okay. was what most of my, I spent most of my time essentially just getting to know the locals, hanging out with them, eating, um, the, like the crazy dramatic part was like maybe one to 2% of the time there. Okay. Um, and so it was really, a really neat experience. Um, I, I'd love to go back there someday, you know, here. Like, it, it was really beautiful. We actually jokingly called it Hawaiiwa because <laughs> you have high-voltage power lines, water towers, cornfields, and then date groves, which look like palm trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which dates are fantastic. I love dates. That reminds me, I need to go to the grocery store and get some dates. <laughs> <laughs> But it's 
you know, it's interesting, like of different like travel experience. Because have you done much traveling outside of the military than internationally? By chance? I have never traveled internationally, not counting like Canada when I was a kid. Okay. Um, internationally outside of the military. Okay. Yeah, because it's interesting. Like we're travel, and this is kind of that enrichment of our lives. Because that while yours was military, and and you were there with a different purpose, uh, being there you were still able to gain something as far as that that empathy, right? Mm-hmm. And and that understanding of culture or how people in that in that region of the world operated and how they lived and um, and it's more than just like the food, right? Like culture is much richer than just you know than food, right? There's other other nuances with it, but uh, I've I as far as my traveling, it's always been on this side of the prime meridian. Uh, it's always been in the Americas. Um, so I've like, of course, I've done been up to Canada myself and Quebec and then as well as with the Ontario province. Um, it's interesting, the dynamic between, you know, French Canadians and, and uh, the rest of the Canadians, um, you know, west from there. Um, but then like in Mexico and then in Colombia, uh, traveled. I would, I would say the most enriching travel experience that I had was Colombia. And that was actually fairly recent. Uh, I was down there in 2018 when I was down in Colombia. And I guess the big takeaway that I got was the kindness of strangers is universal. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly I'm not advocating to not be, don't, you know, be, you know, I would not advocate being complacent. Yes. But, and, and, you know, certainly be on your guard, but... There was plenty of wonderful, kind strangers along my journey when I was there in Colombia. Because what I had to do, so I went down there to travel to see a friend. And my friend, where she was at and where I flew into was a four-hour difference between the two. So basically, I had to go from one end of the country to the other end of the country within that time frame uh, after I landed. So, one, right out of the gates, I'm not used to the cab culture that is Colombia. That's a whole hustle bustle <laughs> system, right? Like, um, and I had to communicate to the to the person who was, you know, waving down buses to flags, like basically had to navigate Cartagena's airport. I flew into Cartagena and I had to make my way all, you know, if you're looking at the map uh, of Colombia, I stayed along the coast for the most part. Uh, for this journey experience, but I flown in the, flown into Cartagena, and I made my way all the way to Santa Marta. I had to go through Barranquilla on the bus, and which was heavily impoverished. Barranquilla was was pretty rough looking, uh, to be very very candid. Uh, and then into Santa Marta, and then I had to get uh, another ride, <laughs> another hour from from Santa Marta. But so. In Cartagena, I had to communicate with uh, the person who was hailing down buses and cabs for for those who were departing. Uh, that was his job. And I told him I needed to get on the Marsol bus, which is a bus line that would basically, that would take me out that way. And it's like, yep, I need to take the Marsol bus to, start to Santa Marta. And so he waved me down. He's like, well, look, basically through communication, I understood that you know, there'll be a Marcel bus that will pick me up within like about a half hour. 
There was like a couple laps that they needed to go through. Finally, that Marcel bus came. I got on it and I sat down in the bus. Um, well, I had to figure out during that time frame of like when I was going to arrive in Santa Marta because I had to have someone who was going to pick me up. There was a whole coordination effort of me communicating, texting my friend who was an hour away from Santa Marta to begin with. She was over on the beach <laughs> communicating this. <laughs> and so through that, I'm like, well, I need to figure out where I need to stop. By the way, understanding the address system in a foreign country is important because I didn't know that at first. And I was trying to figure out where the last bus stop would be, what the address would be, where they can pick me up, et cetera. And so um, I had to figure that out and like talk to the bus driver. This is where the kindness of strangers picked up. There was a woman who was about my age who could actually speak a bit of English uh, who was on the bus. And she came and came over and sat next to me and helped me out. Like to figure out where the address system and like where we would be stopping at and communicating with my friend basically because she was coordinating with her i'm using air quotes mutual friends to come pick me up um in an uber well got to santa marta and i this is something that i for completely forgot about was so columbia is on the equator and this was you know i was up in iowa coming down closer to the equator so the sunset in iowa was like nine o'clock Whereas sunset down there is 6.30. And I completely forget about that, you know, where you're on the equator. So the sunset's like right around six o'clock every single day. You know, the sunset doesn't really change as far as it's time. Um, That'd be so weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's the same throughout. No change. Uh, rarely any change. I mean, there's Columbia is a little bit, um, a little bit, you know, away from the equator. So there's a little bit of fluctuation, but we're talking like minutes difference. Mm. We're not talking like in Iowa or the Midwest or, or just, you know, North America in general, where, you know, where you go from winter time where it sets, you know, like at four 30, uh, you know, where, and then it ranges all the way out to like nine 30 <laughs> for our sunset, uh, where it's consistent. But so finally got to the last stop in Santa Marta. And I had to get out and it's dark. So it's like, here I am, this Iowa boy, gringo as can be, um, in Colombia. It's dark. I'm on a street in Santa Marta in Colombia. My mother's worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thankfully, like, and this is, again, another story of the kindness of strangers. The bus driver coordinated with a taxi driver. To say, hey, this guy needs someone to wait with him because he understood, like, that, you know, I'm, I could be a target of some capacity, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, can you wait with this guy or at least give him a ride to his next destination, which was an hour away? I, I was going to Tyrona National Park and I was going to stay at a hostel out there. And so this taxi driver waited with, so the bus driver understood the situation, the taxi driver understood the situation. And so I was waiting there with the taxi driver. We're using Google Translate to talk uh, back and forth to each other. And thankfully, I kind of, I had a moment where I was thinking on my feet because uh, he asked me, he's like, uh, you know, who you're waiting for? I said, well, it's a, uh, it's a, you know, friend of a friend. This is the license plate number. And he goes, well, is this an Uber? And thankfully, I fibbed 
I go, no, it's a friend of a friend who's picking me up and they just gave me their license plate number. He goes, because then he goes in the Google translate goes good because Ubers are illegal in Santa Marta because it's the cab companies that have a union there. Uh, And so Ubers are illegal there. And I guess very illegal. And in fact, I guess taxi drivers, the union down there, from what I've heard story-wise is that they would beat up Uber drivers. Basically, Uber drivers are scabs poaching on their rides, right? (laughs) Um, So thankfully, I position it that way to them. Finally, the quote-unquote illegal Uber picked me up. Um, and I saw a mutual friend who was also getting a ride from the Santa Marta airport, um, who was a friend of my uh, friend is like, I'm going, I'm going to be okay. (laughs) I'm going to be okay. Um, so I guess from that travel, it's like the kindness of strangers is one of the big things. Like, you know, it's just like if someone was asking you, uh, you know, out on the you know, on the street, like, hey, I need directions to this and this. Can you help me out, please? You know, are you going to be rude to them? Are you, uh, if they, you know, if it's a little bit broken English, like, or broken, you know, of the native tongue, are you going to be mean to them, uh, rude to them? Because I, my Spanish is very rough, so it was very broken Spanish. And, you know, those individuals down there could have been very rude to me if they wanted to, but Colombians were some of the nicest people I ever came across in my life. And that's saying something coming from a Midwesterner. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and some of the Midwesterners, you know, I've come across rude. I come across some of the best, and I've come across some of the most rude individuals in the Midwest uh, when it comes to prejudices oh, of people. Absolutely. You know, who speaks a little bit differently, who maybe. English is a second language. Mm-hmm. After that, you know, certainly after that trip, I've, I've always respected people who could speak multiple languages, but I had a deeper respect for people who can speak multiple languages. That is difficult to master. Like for someone who can speak, you know, I call it like halfway broken English, but that is fluent in their native tongue. I have deep respect for those individuals because like to ask me to turn around and be, you know, halfway fluent or broken Spanish to their, of how they are with English, I couldn't compete with them. Well, I've heard that like learning a different language, like actually can change the way that you think. hundred um, percent. You know, the, having different words for different things. Cause you know, with language, the little that I know about it is, you know, there aren't one for one, you know, translations for words correct um while we might have one word in english other languages might have three or four to be more nuanced or and vice versa and which that just like completely changes the way that you think about something i like my my kids go to a german immersion school and oh that's wonderful oh oh yeah the uh (laughs) that's great the and listening to them like just talk in german i'm like what? <laughs> so are they having conversations that you don't understand that maybe they're like totally dogging you or making fun of you? Oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to grow up loving that, that they had that piece on you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you better watch out, though. I'll, you know, 
because they like I've spent a little bit of time doing some Duolingo, so they know I explored a little bit. And one of the guys that I work with, who's on my team, he is fluent in German. Okay. I mean, like he has his computer set to German. So you know, when you see on your you know computer in the menu like file, edit, all that stuff, all that's in German on his machine, which. It's hilarious. When that's you see great. Him forward an email. Hey, that's oh, yeah. that's a good way to force yourself to learn language, mm-hmm. oh, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Or keep your the, uh, or keep your mind sharp or your tongue sharp, basically in the in that language. Yep. Um, and so it's it definitely gives me a better appreciation for you know for what it takes. Because there's a few times I've tried to sit down and like, all right, I'm gonna try learning some German. Like, oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the the grammar like I barely understand English grammar, let alone. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're 100 right that one it, it it almost it deepens and this isn't anything revolutionary, but it does deepen your understanding of your own native tongue when you learn mm. a foreign language, um, and also it makes you understand that English is a very difficult language to understand is and learn like even native speakers still struggle with nuances with either word use. You know, I'm raising my hand listeners with, you know, there's certain things where I, I've come across mis, you know, misused words like, Oh, that doesn't foot or that's not the appropriate definition (laughs) or even grammatical. You know, it's it's always a learning. Uh, Yeah, I got kind of just a a small window into the insane complexity of it. The uh, the mother of my kids is has a degree in linguistics, mm. and so like I just remember learning things like phrases like "glottal stop," which is a term for a certain sound that you can make, and it's like it like it's when you learn a little bit you learn how much there is to learn. Right. Uh, And I mean, that's really the case with anything. Um, When you aren't familiar with something from the outside, it might seem simple. Uh, Like I discovered that with software engineering. And, you know, once I, you go through, I can't remember, there's like this phrase where there's like an X, Y scale of, you've got confidence to competence. And at the beginning, when you first learn a little bit, your competence skyrockets up high. Right. And then as you actually learn your confidence, I'm sorry, skyrockets. But then as you learn a little bit, it actually dips back down and it's kind of like a reversed bell curve that goes down until your your lowest confidence is when you actually have about average competence and then your confidence starts to go back up to the point when you're actually an expert, you're just as confident as you were very early on when you didn't know what you didn't know. Sure. Yeah, that, that U-shape. Uh, like, There's parallels with that because I was, I was listening to um, a podcast where they're talking about the U-shape of happiness. So it's kind of like the same thing with learning from that standpoint where it's that, that U-shape where you kind of dip back through um, as, as far as your competence of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the subject material. So it's so parallel, like <laughs> as far as like learning, like whether it was science, language, um, English classes, et cetera, uh, whether it was college or high school, it was that same structure. Like there's times even like even with like my main career, it's like there's the old saying of like, I know less today than I did yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> 
And they're, they're, and it's just like, like just like kind of that feeling. Like oh yeah, well I mean it's when you look at it from the perspective of you know what you know if a you know the more you the more you learn the more you learn the let me back up here a little bit so the more you know the more you know about things that you realize that you don't know oh sure so like when you think hey i think i have a solid understanding on the subject matter of this subject matter well, yeah, you probably have a solid understanding of like the first 2%. And so you might think you have, you know, of that 2%, yeah, you know almost all of it. So you're an expert in that 2%. You don't realize that there's a whole 98%. It's kind of like the iceberg concept. Mm-hmm. And then as you get deeper into it, you're like, oh, oh my. <laughs> you're right. And that's where in, like you, it's almost embarrassing. I look back at early on my career and I remember when I was just like, you know, when I first, I felt like a coding God <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh my gosh, all the things I can make. And then as I got deeper into it, I'm like, I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's just like the better of understanding yourself. Like you get that humility, like you, you know, you, you're humbling yourself through that experience, right? Like at first you're like super confident, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't have the humbling, you haven't been humbled enough. And that, I think that's where the factor comes in. It's like, the deeper you get involved in it, the more humble you become. Of yeah. it. And that's just like that. That's just the seeking of knowledge of that. Like the kind of circle back with like the travel, like travel makes oneself more humble. Like if you truly right. genuinely travel and, and challenge yourself like through travel. Um, again, I, I think there's a healthy way to do that. Like obviously don't put yourself in danger uh, when it's, you know, avoidable, um, you know, I'm not advocating to put yourself in dangerous, like truly dangerous situations, but travel to challenge one's self to, you know, really immerse yourself traveling wise. Like I'm, and this is where that monoculture comes from is like, I don't, I don't count travel when you go to like westernized zones necessarily, where it's basically just a resort. Like, you know, I talk to people, oh, it's like, yeah. where. You know, it's it's kind of like a westernized privilege where they go down, go down to like Jamaica, but they stayed at a resort. Mm-hmm. You didn't really travel to Jamaica. Yeah, your location was there, but did you truly travel to Jamaica? That was like a big difference. Like, so um, in 2006, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. We trained with the uh, Israeli Defense Force for a couple weeks. Oh, I bet that was a trip. I that bet that was, was definitely a trip. Uh, but the so the first week was an abbreviated version of their counterterrorism school, and then the second week was going out to the Negev desert and just blowing up stuff, which was a lot of fun. Um, but while we were training, we were with the Israeli Defense Force. We ate the food that they ate. We slept in the same type of environment that they slept in, and um, the and then in between the um, those two weeks, um, they gave us thirty six hours off. They gave us a two square mile area that we could that we could explore because I mean you have you know a couple hundred Marines and you're like all right how can we let them loose on a foreign town without creating an international incident um, and <laughs> lo and behold it's a story for another time but we almost did and <laughs> <laughs> and so they picked out like this area that was very mostly westernized. 
and um you know in there like there was you could like there was a mcdonald's there and everything um but there were some subtle differences um one of the big differences was like in advertising and just like the biggest difference that i think i saw while in israel was like when walking through the malls and whatnot depictions of like war and violence versus um sexuality so the in america we tend to censor sexuality more than we censor violence right um in israel they censor violence in their advertising a lot more than they censor sex so they had like there were some like posters up for advertising clothing and stuff like that. We're just like, what the... Like, yeah, pretty provocative. Yeah, very... <laughs> we're like, there's no way that'd be legal in America. <laughs> um, but there was like no like violent video games, violent midi- video or movie. Like you didn't really see any of that stuff. Um, and I mean, culturally, it kind of makes sense. I mean, just to get into the mall, first you got wanded by a guy with an Uzi to see if you're wearing a suicide vest, and then you had to go through medical metal detectors. It was actually harder to get into the mall than it was to get on a plane here in the States. Interesting. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but this was a very Western, you know, um, town. It was on the very southern tip of Israel, right okay. on, on the Red Sea. We were also brief. Please do not make any Moses jokes. That's not sensitive to the local culture. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then while we were there, it was also um, a gay pride festival. Really? Oh yeah, and that was that was entertaining. Um, they did not. I don't think they realized that. So. Um, <laughs> culture shock for some Midwest Marines. Sure. Well, especially, w- and this was circa 2006, right? Yes. So, yep. I mean, we've come a long way in the LGBTQ. Oh, yes. You know, yeah, Don't Ask, Don't sentiment. Tell was fully in effect yeah, exactly. at that point in time. Fully in effect. Yeah. Um, Thank goodness that's long gone, but it, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Where, of how far we've come since then. Yeah, the, uh, um, but what was actually kind of funny, so, you know, prejudice, stereotype, that's, that's very much a thing. And usually we hear, think of it from the perspective of, you know, our prejudice and our stereotypes. But when we first got to Israel, um, and we're at the training center on our cots, there were these like weird little like paper, like treasure chest things, like something you'd see at a like kid's birthday party mm-hmm. on each one. And we're like, what the hell are these things? <laughs> I mean, and so and we open them up and they're just filled with this weird assortment of different like chocolates. Uh, like, like imagine like a Hershey, like a Hershey's bar or a crunch bar, except, you know, the labels are on all in Hebrew, which is kind of cool. Like Nestle. And what we found out was there's a stereotype that Americans just absolutely love chocolate. They also <laughs> arranged to make sure Cocoa Puffs were at every bre- every breakfast <laughs> alongside the like chicken and hummus, <laughs> which that's actually where I developed my love for hummus. But, um, but it's like that was a stereotype they had that Americans absolutely love chocolate. And I mean... We do. I mean, we, yeah, we do. I mean, <laughs> but it was just like, wait, what is what? How, wh- 
I mean, I ate my fair share of Cocoa Puffs as a kid. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It was, But it was definitely felt like, as nice as it was, it's still the part of you felt like judged. Sure. It was definitely, it was like, huh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, could, like, at that point in time in my life, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I'm just like, like, it, it didn't entirely feel great. I mean, it wasn't horrible. It wasn't awful. The chocolate was good. Um, it was, you know, pleasant to have. But at the same time, it was just like the reason for it. Sure. was just like, oh, you did this because we're Americans. Right. Yeah. It, but what you got out of that, though, I mean, is you broke down that prejudice a little bit. Oh yeah, we like that's that's how we found out. We actually asked him. I was like, "What the hell are these things about?" And they're like, "Oh, don't Americans love chocolate?" And so we actually had a conversation. I'm like, "Well, yeah, but we don't all like chocolate, you know? Right? The, We're not uh, obsessed about it. Exactly. Like, like if you go to like a, a job where someone has like a candy, you know, thing, it's like, yeah, chocolate could be in there, but it's not like." I don't know. For for me, it's like chocolate only it it ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. and it's more so around the holidays. Yeah, it's not like a daily occurrence that I have a Snickers bar or or something <laughs> like that. Don't get me wrong. Like if I'm hungry, if I go to a gas station while I'm on the road, you know, in between for photography or travel purposes, I mean, a candy bar can go some miles, right? Mm-hmm. It's cheap and it you know has some. It's rich in calories, but. Uh, no, I don't obsess about chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I love it, but like my yeah. favorite, my favorite, my favorite candy is actually more in the sweets. So mm. it's like, yes. and I don't even eat that on the daily. <laughs> so now you know a, a stereotype that Israelis have about Americans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, with, with you mentioning that, it's like there's a great Mark Twain quote about travel, and it's travel is fatal to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness and many of our people need it sorely on those accounts actually on these accounts and it's that's so true like like if people Mm -hmm. experience other people's like lives culture and just even through conversation it begins that breakdown of those prejudices those big you know any bigotry that they may have um i'm sure like you know, even through like military, if you had to d- work with people who had a different cultural background or they lived in a different region within the United States, I'm sure that it helps break down those barriers because you have to work with them more or less. But as well with travel, like it broke down a lot of the stereotypes with Columbia because I still remember vividly um, the concern people had. I'm going down to Columbia because I'm sure you can guess and I'm sure the listeners can guess, what are the big stereotypes of Colombia? Oh, the cartels. The cartels, the mm-hmm. drugs, the violence. Because, you know, I mean, and, the, and there was that problem, right? I mean, there was, you know, the Pablo Escobar's, the Cali cartels of the world, um, you know, during the 80s and 90s, right? I mean, that, in 70s. I'm, and there's still, you know, there's still issues throughout, you know, within the United States with it and as well through Latin America. But... It was nothing like that when I was there. I mean, are there regions to not travel to? Sure. But there's also travel advisories in the United States. I I hope people understand that too. Like 
there are places that it's not recommended to travel in the United States. So we're not perfect by any means no, either. definitely not. Um, but there was definitely those stereotypes. And then when I came back home, people were like, well, how, how was it? Like concern, like, did you see things? And it's like, no, I didn't see things like that. Yeah, I've, I've heard that that's kind of a view that like Europeans have about like one of the big things that they're warned about is gun violence in the United States. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Or going to like certain sections of major metropolises. Do not go there. Yeah. Gun violence, gang violence in the United States is part of their travel advisories. So it's, it's interesting from that perspective. But but my travels to Colombia in that sense, or even Mexico when I was down there, it broke down those barriers. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's interesting to talk to people, and this is where like that kind of that biodiversity really came into play and just broke, broke down that barrier was like when I was talking to friends and family here in, in the state of Iowa is like, you know, where, where the rhetoric was very sharp against those within like Latin America, uh, especially when the heated um, conversations around like immigration or other things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that is not accurate from that standpoint. The, the, the prejudices and the bigotry that you hold is very inaccurate. And it's like, and then the question begs to them is like, have you traveled? Have you experienced or conversed with people from those regions of the world. And I would, I would put money, I'm not a very good gambler, but I would put money that they have not had either an in-depth conversation with folks from those regions of the world. Not saying that they, they, you know, people from that regions of the world wouldn't agree with you on things, like as far as policies or procedures. I mean, we're not, not to get into the political uh, yeah. conversation of it, but you know, have you had those conversations with people to better understand kind of the reasons of the why mm -hmm. of their of their lives? And I, I had kind of a really uh, interesting experience that it wasn't um, so much like cultural, mm -hmm. um, but before I got into IT, I spent some time in the meatpacking industry. Oh, okay. And so I worked alongside. Um, like I, uh, some individuals that I know were illegal immigrants. Okay, super nice people, can great food, and um, also against some you know worked alongside some you know felons and convicts, um, who were you know they that was literally the best job that they could get be based off of what they you know had done in the past. Sure, and. You know, there's some really nice people. Um, you know, it's like just interacting with people that you would never otherwise interact with. It that was one of the things that kind of changed me as well. Uh, aside from the military, it was working in that space, and it broke down. I think a lot of the you know the prejudice and the stereotypes that I had about what those people were like, and just completely blew them away. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Because you're you're. Your brothers and sisters in arms whenever it comes to like a job, mm -hmm. right? And like you, you're here together and you're interacting. So I bet that was a very enriching 
experience from that, just from that standpoint alone. If there's one thing I'm sure you took away from it was just to better understand their experiences in life, especially if they were here illegally or people who, <laughs> who, who has done, done things, like you said, felon, uh, felons from that standpoint, and they just need to turn, turn the corner in their lives. I'm sure they had a pretty rich experience, more or less, and I'm, I'm using air quotes of rich experience about what they did and the lessons that they've learned. Um, I bet that I bet that enriched your life. I, I bet that was one thing it, that you yeah, took away it was, from it. It was like the knowing, you know, they not going into like detail about like what they did or what the background was because I didn't know. I just you know you'd have small talk and being like, yeah, that's you know the it was just a felon ex con type phrase, and then so and just interacting with them like I would any other person. Mm-hmm. And um, it was in if you know, if I met him in a coffee shop, you'd, you'd never guess. Sure. It was definitely can't judge a book by its cover. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, like even like when we talk, you know, today's culture is like really divisive and polarizing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of, it's very tribal. If, yes. if that's a good way to, if that's a way to put it, is that it feels very tribal. And one of the things that I feel that I'm enriched in, even though like I'm, you know, if you're asking me politically, what do I lie? I'm progressive liberal. But I have friends who are conservative. And I have friends who are progressive liberal. And I have libertarian friends. I mean, there's certain like ethical lines that I don't entertain conversation like, you know, homophobia or like racist rhetoric. I, 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 those are like line crossing. Like I don't entertain what I call or I deem as like hard, unethical behavior or thought processes. Right. But they do provide value of conversation because I think at the end of the day, where when, when it comes to that realm is that we want to embedder our world. We have the same end goal. We want a better future for us. We want a better future for children and future generations. Uh, we we want the world to be a good place. How we go about it is just different philosophy. And I, I think there is an enrichment of having conversations with those who you disagree with. All right, it's kind of like with Abraham Lincoln, where he had the uh, the team of rivals. Right, mm-hmm. he hadn't nec- he didn't have a bunch of yes people. He didn't have a bunch of yes men on his board on his council right so i think that's i think that's also important to have is like break down that tribalism the echo chambers of life like have someone who disagrees with you on things but have a common goal with them too like you i think that's the most i think that's one of the more important parts of life is like don't seek the echo chambers because it's familiar right it's familiar it feels safe um and you know like the you know, biodiversity of thought. Um, Absolutely. Being able to, if we spend more time trying to understand those around us rather than seeking out to be understood, you can go a long way. And, you know, if you understand where someone's coming from, you can potentially figure out, you know, what it is that they fear. Because at the end of the day, all negative behavior is driven by fear. Exactly. Um, and fear of the unknown is one of the 
greatest things. And a lot of times the fear doesn't even exist. Um, it's very conducive for um, individuals who want to have power to remain in power by creating division. Um, if you have the masses fighting amongst themselves, they're not going to rise up against you. Right. Um, and if you, you know, take the time to listen to things that make your skin crawl and like, why, why do they think that? And just keep asking why, why, why until you kind of trace it back. And then once you understand it, that, you know, I mean, not entirely. There's times where once I understand something, I'm not entirely sure what to do with it. But <laughs> what it does is it prevents me from hating them. Exactly. And sometimes that's the best thing. If I'm not hating them, then I'm not acting out of anger, hate, or fear. And I can't change how other people behave but I can choose how I'm going to behave and how I'm going to respond. Exactly. That's the best way of putting it. Because like you can, you can have people that disagree with you in your life from that standpoint, but if you get rid of the hate and anger aspects of it, you can have a fruitful relationship with that person. Like whether it's a friendship or even like a romantic relationship, even like, there's documented cases where you have like a liberal conservative that are married together kind of deal or just like just different perspectives, but they can still make it work. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of offering from that standpoint where you have people in your life that provide different perspectives, but you still have the same end goal like you were just talking about, but you just eliminate the barriers of understanding, which is those elements of, you know, hate and, 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 you know, disdain for individuals from that perspective. One of the things that I had thought of, and I'll see if I can't, I haven't, haven't articulated it to anyone in a while, but going back to like my experience with Iraq and interacting mm -hmm. with the insurgents for mm -hmm. a perspective and a thought that I had was I would consider it to be a far greater success to be able to see one of those individuals be able to be de-radicalized and, you know, return to becoming a member of, you know, an open-minded member of society as opposed to killing them. Right. Um, killing them is, you know, an utter failure. It's a last resort, which I'm thankful I haven't had to do. And, um, but I always thought that, you know, it would be a greater success. It would not really, it would be the only true success would be being able to live together in peace. Um, you know, not suppressing, not oppressing not having to, you know, manipulate or to regulate, but to just be able to have a society where, you know, we can coexist with different opinions and making sure that our first priority is that we do no harm. Exactly. Exactly. Like, and that, that parallels with like the concept, like, I mean, not 
is is love, right? Like where if you love thy neighbor. I was right. waiting for you to drop love. I was literally, I was literally talking around the entire word. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going right in for the heart. I'm going right for the heart. Yep. But like, I always think of like, you know, the 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 Maya Angelou quote of that love liberates. Mm-hmm. You want your neighbor to be free for who they are, right? Yeah. You want your your spouse, your significant other, your friends to be who they are. If you truly love them. You want them to be free. Love liberates, right? Mm-hmm. It's when it's exactly the point you're talking about when when they're manipulating, when you have different intentions, you want to shape them to who they are or like or what have you. That's not love. That's not love. Like that no. that's that's ego, that's control. That is you know, that's the antithesis of love. Actually, do you know what the true do you know what the opposite of love is? Oh, We've talked about this at length, <laughs> and in fact, there's been a few drinks over this over the course of uh, of, <laughs> of of circumstances that happen in each other's lives. But for the listeners, what is the opposite of love? Apathy. Hundred percent. The if you know you can't hate something that you don't also love, and so the reason you like we tend to feel hate or anger towards those of opposing views is because it's breaking our hearts, seeing them live in a way that we feel is contrary to, you know, our moral compass. Mm -hmm. And we want like nothing more than to be able to show them, you know, to use the common phrase, show them the light. Sure. Uh, (laughs) Sure. And, you know, if they are feeling hatred and anger towards us, it's, you know, it's their view back at us. Right. Um, so it's, if we are, are able to take that hate and anger and understand that, you know what, you can hold, and like, having a thought, having a view, having an opinion is one thing. Acting on it is something else. Taking the time to step back, being like, I don't believe that's right, but I'm going to hold the space and try to understand first. Sure. If both, emphasis here, if both sides do that, then growth can happen. If only one side does it, then usually it leads to oppression. But you know, right? Well, I get, yeah. So it's like, ap- yes, apathy is like the antithesis of love mm-hmm. because it just does. It's basically it, it doesn't allow anything to flourish. Right? It's, right? You're not watering the garden at if, that point. Seek first to understand. Right. I guess where I was going with the the ego is that it's a it's it's not allowing that freedom to happen. It's like you are the true manipulator in that case. Yeah. Which is. It may come across as love, but it's not. It's not healthy love. It's it's kind of has a, its own toxic trait to it, and that maybe that goes into like, you know, you're manipulating the environment from that standpoint. That's the monoculture of that of that relationship, right? That comes, yeah. That comes from you know when you're reacting out of fear, and you're attempting to control a situation to force it into something that you're familiar with, right? Yeah. So that that's that's actually a great way to sum that up right there. Actually, is it's out of fear, so you're manipulating it from that fashion. I liked how you put that uh, because that's that's so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> that's so accurate. Oh, uh, but 
Yeah. So, I mean, that, and that's where it really comes down to is like, you know, from a love perspective, uh, freedom perspective, um, is, you know, it allows for those different perspectives of flourishment, right? Like, you know, even though like on the, on the pretense or the, you know, the, the title of our, of our podcast here, where, you know, I'm an atheist from this perspective, I have friends who are Baptist ministers mm-hmm. and I'm enriched by their experience and they, we have mutual respect for each other. We may not agree as far as like theological or philo- philosophical stamp from, from a per- perspective of faith, but I'm not out there like, you know, denouncing them or not militant on, on, you know, how, how, how they're wrong on life. And, and they're just as respectful, if not more, about who of who I am. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's like they're just mindful of like and respectful of people too. And that that's all that that's the fundamentals of what is a good relationship to have with people who think differently from you. I mean, I went to go eat with um, an acquaintance who was a who was a Baptist minister, and you know what his the first thing that he asked me was do you have any dietary restrictions? You know, he didn't impose anything. Mm -hmm. He's like, we're going to go, you know, where we've come across people who maybe have a certain mindset and it's like, it's their way or the highway. But his first question to me, and we were in small town, Iowa was, do you have any dietary restrictions? Cause he was just being respectful. Like, you know, you know, just in case is Erica, is Erica vegetarian? I'm not, but it's like, is Erica vegetarian or does he, is he gluten free or is he have some, you know, food allergies. So it's like, that's, that just goes miles. Like just being respectful to people from oh, that perspective goes oh, miles. And you can be proactive even when not interacting with other people. Like, you know, this last Sunday was Easter. Right. Uh, you know, I spent some time actually on Easter thinking like, you know, I'm going to brush up on, you know, what is their theology? What, you know, what exactly is the celebration? So I spent some time cracking open a Bible, going through, looking at the different gospels and, you know, diving into some of the theology um, and just kind of brushing up. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what this whole thing is about. Um, now is that my faith? No, but you know, I can hold the space without you know, I could take the time to listen and to understand. That doesn't necessarily mean it changes who I am and what I believe. Like, it just allows me to better connect and be prepared for when those, you know, interactions happen. Exactly. You, so, you seek to understand that vantage and you and further enrich your understanding of that perspective. Mm-hmm. So... Well, wonderful. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I believe this is a conversation that we could spend hours talking about. In fact, I think we'll revisit it at some point here very soon. But uh, Brian always, I mean, we, I love our rabbit holes that we go down. (laughs) Um, But we'll, we'll pick up this subject on a later, on a later episode. So, but again, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Oak and Adam and stay tuned for next week as we continue our conversations.